Hello, everybody. Welcome to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast, hosted by Dave Kellogg and Thomas Otter. And this week, our special guest is Murli Masvacheri, and we are going to be talking about product management, as we always seem to do on this show. So, um, uh, Murli, I've, I've known you, oh, it's probably probably 10 years, coming up 10 years now. Time flies when you're having fun. Yes. Um, uh, maybe maybe tell, tell a few folks, you know, uh, about your career, what you've been doing, and, and your, your uh, experiences in product management so far. Thanks, Thomas. Dave, great to be here. So I, my background is in HR. I started as an HR practitioner on the shop floor, and then I was an HR consultant for more than a decade. And then the last 10 years, I've been a, a product manager building HR-related, people-related enterprise software. So as a product manager, I was with SuccessFactors, and then we got acquired by SAP. I was there for um, close to a dozen, uh, 10 years at SAP, and then for the last year and a half now, I'm with uh, uh, Utmost, and we are a startup in the uh, workday adjacent non-employee management space. So you could call it a contingent workforce, uh, you could call it vendor management system, but it's a combination of that, but seen from a talent lens. Cool. So... You know, let's go back a bit to the early days. Or we'll do a little bit of history. It's nice to do a little bit of reminiscing. We go back to the early days of of success factors when you when you first started up with uh, uh, with Employee Central. Um, how big was the product? How big was the team? And, and where did it end up going? So we had about fifteen developers. Uh, I was the product manager, and uh, we were we were trying to build a core HR system, which is probably the uh, most difficult of the people uh, technology software to build. I mean, if you live on payroll and time, you know, it's, it's adjacent to that. So we had that. And then soon after the we got acquired, then we, we went eightfold up. We had about 120 developers. So from 15 to 120, we went in about three months or so. And that was an interesting challenge about how to scale up our, just our, delivery uh, activities to go when, when you're 15 and one product manager to when you are having, say, 10 product managers or 15 product managers and you're 120 people, then the way you operate have to completely change. And, uh, and, and that poses some interesting... Sure, sure. Let's 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 uh, uh, let's maybe dig into that. Uh, let's let's maybe dig into that a little bit more. So so. Yeah, how did you how do you cope with that? How do you cope from going from being essentially a you know a fifteen person team where you can you know have a big pizza and feed everybody to that that kind of remote global uh, global model? How, how, you know, how do you actually do that? Yeah, so I don't think we had a blueprint when we started. We just kind of bumbled along. Um, we we did a few things very well. One of the things we did is we. Uh, we did a fairly extensive onboarding sessions for all the people. Now, uh, we weren't hiring people, right? We were all, you know, these were all teams that were moving in from different parts of SAP into success factors. So, therefore, it's not like you have to go through an extensive selection process and stuff like that. So, you just straight up jump into onboarding. So, you first make sure that, you know, you have all the uh, standardized, all the uh, tools that you're going to have. Even that was quite a challenge. Uh, so, for, for one party onboard people onto what the product is, what the what the tools are, etc. And then and then come up with a process that will work for everybody. We actually didn't have a single standard process. Different teams did different things depending on whether they were in 
Germany, the US, Bangalore or Shanghai. We had four locations as well. Um, and actually we have five, including a small team in Copenhagen. But, um, but that pretty much, let's say, Germany was the uh, epicenter of, of the development. So um, that, that took us a while. And then we actually didn't have, we set up a, a lot of processes to start with. Some of them worked, some of them didn't work, uh, or you know, it, nobody did anything with it. It was kind of lying around. Um, so we went through that, and and I think over a period of maybe first year, it was spent refining those processes. Wow. I, I don't think we said we have one set of processes and so oh, let's try this. And then some people, some people would, in, I mean, invariably somebody would find some something wrong with the way that it was working, right? So then you change and you change, sort of like product management, I suppose. Sure, sure, sure. So so what would be your advice to be, you know, for somebody if you if you're a, you know, if you're a PM in a in a in a software company and then you get acquired by a bigger software company what what would you advise to that to that PMB um, you know when they they suddenly go from a situation where you know they may be a, a one dotted line away from the CEO to you know to suddenly being part of this this big uh, this big beast How, what what would you advise to them be so i don't think i i don't think uh, from a work perspective like the physical work perspective there's that much difference yes there there's going to be a whole lot of other uh, groups of people that you have to engage with. And, and the, the guidance would be that engage with those people. I don't think one can try to um, uh, say that things are going to be better the way it was. I, cannot, I could never say that things were better uh, before the acquisition. Right? The, just the fact that we had so much more capacity to to play with now granted that capacity came with a lot of asks on the other side of it but still it's still it's you it's like you're playing uh, what's it county cricket one day and you're playing test match the other day right so uh, it, you do feel like you're in a, so the, therefore the thing is that you will have to engage and use all those different uh, things now as far as the work is concerned whether you're one level from a ceo or you're a big fish small pond versus small pond uh, small fish big pond I don't think that really affects your day-to-day work. Uh, and you can get caught up in that, but that's no point. Um, and then the other thing is whether or not we like it as part of the acquisition, you have to then adopt whatever is the new world is going to be. There's no point fighting that. Right. And there are some people who did fight it uh, and they were generally unhappy, but that never works out well. Right. Uh, and just to... to, to I had the good fortune that, for example, I engaged a lot with the larger SAP. Uh, and for me, that was hugely beneficial. Yeah, what do you mean by fight it, uh, Morelli? So Cut fight it, it is like I continue to do things the, exactly the way that I was doing before. Yeah. That's, no, you know, and, and that, that's what uh, you say. Or, or you start saying like, I will own. Yeah, it, it comes down to the way that because you cannot operate uh, when you're 15 people, you you operate on a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a firefighting type mode. And it works just well for that mode, model. It doesn't, you can't firefight when you have like this many people, right? It's just chaos all along. So I think from that perspective, uh, it's better to uh, adopt it. And, 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 or the, the other part when I say fight it is, uh, is not to be engaged. Uh, where you say, I'll just live in the same world that I was in, ignoring the other part of it. Uh, Got it. That also doesn't, you don't get the benefit of being part of a large organization. That lift you don't get. 
uh, either from a product or from, from a personal development perspective and opportunities. And then if I phrase that the other way around, uh, what would your advice be to, to a PM in a, in a large vendor uh, when they acquire a, a, a team from an acquisition? What would your guidance be the other way around? Uh, cross-pollinate. Uh, that is the one thing that, for example, I was fortunate enough to work on a product where SAP actually did cross-pollinate. And we actually saw the benefit uh, of that attitude. You know, um, Thomas, you and I used to talk about this one called uh, if you run uh, success factor speed at SAP scale, right? That was what uh, one of the things. And you cannot really achieve that unless you cross-pollinate. Because you do, you know, there is some there is some value to the speed at which we used to run at uh, as a smaller company. And, and you want to try and preserve as much as, of that as you can, cutting out all the chaos. And, right. and from that perspective, um, uh, you know, cross-pollination really helps because it's not like, it's not like the, the larger company doesn't have the people who can do the uh, speed running. It's just that you, know, you bring in that uh, slightly different thinking into shaking things up a little bit. Right, right. And, and so I suppose the other, the other difference that you, happens when you deal with a, with a, with a big customer, with a, when you become part of a big vendor, is you know, dealing with a, a different type of sales force. You know? uh, when, you, when you're with a small vendor, you, you, you kind of know the salespeople you know, and you have an informal, you know, you have an informal negotiation and, 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 and method of, of you know, coping with um, uh, you know, random requirements and so on. And, and, but when you're in the bigger vendor, um, you know, things change. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think you, with with the smaller, with we had the same, we had the same pressures. I I don't think there's anything that uh, I could say that oh we didn't have the uh, commitments to sales uh, or, or sales driven commitments. Um, uh, we we had them even when we were success factors. No question about it. Now, when we went to the larger company, the 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 number of people you're dealing with and the kind of complexity in that. That's a whole different beast, um, and therefore, therefore, the pressures come from a lot of different different places. And I'm I'm not still convinced that it's possible to control it. It's it's best to manage it to the best we can. Right, right. I, I don't I haven't seen in eight years. I've I tried and uh, didn't get very far. But there will always be. If you want to grow, I suppose it is. It you will have to you will have to make some commitments. To build stuff that's not there, yeah. I don't think we can get away from that. Yeah, there's always that tension between you know selling what you have and selling a vision. You know? Right, and my my at least I try to do this, and I still try to do this uh, today. Is the salesperson has a choice? They can sell what we have, but if we sell what we don't yet have, then buy us the time to get there. Right. Ex- expand on that a little, but that's that's kind of really interesting. Because yeah, I think a lot so, of people don't think about the time dimension in product management. They often think, okay, we need this capability, but it's a two-sided yeah. equation in the sense that on the one hand is that you, you what do you need and yeah. when do you need it by? And uh, that's right. the when is often the, 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 the more challenging factor yes. than the what. And I, I look back at, uh, I, you know, at least in the limited domain I work in, which is mostly people technologies, most of the commits that have come my way, uh, it's not a question of if. It was always a question of when. Yeah, we'll get to this. It's not, we can't yet do this because we have to do these other things. 
that's usually been my response. I mean, there's been some odd things here or there, but by and large, I mean, on the bell curve, you know, the bulk of this stuff would come in this bucket that, oh yeah, absolutely we want to do this. Um, but we won't be able to get to this in three years or foreseeable future, for example. Right. So then, then, then it becomes a matter of uh, using the, the, the sales person, whoever is the account exec, to be able to uh, get the person's uh, support to manage the customer and balance their expectations and, and, and see whether uh, what we can do and and i think that's that's where it is because I, you know it's not a it's not a at least in the enterprise space it people are trying to get some function work better right that's what the, it's either automating it or making it more more efficient or effective whatever be the thing it's not like uh, i'm doodling around uh, posting comments all day that's not the purpose of an enterprise software typically so therefore uh, there is a val- validity to when a customer asks for something that we don't have yet. So I, I never, f- most more often than not, so therefore I can confidently say that it's always a matter of when, and that's the time dimension that you're talking about. Right, right. So And, and, and because, one more thing, because in the enterprise uh, SaaS world especially, the account exec, it's not like they can just throw the relationship over the wall and walk away. They, there is a, an engagement process that the account exec also has even after the deal is closed with the customer. So there is some value to, to having that account exec own that part of the equation that if we don't, if you sell what we don't have, help me manage that relationship. But don't come back and say, well, the customer is angry because we don't have this, we have gaps. Well, they will all, we knew the gaps were there when we sold it. And both hey, of us signed uh, up for this. Thomas, can I see a question now? Indeed, sneak away. Did you have what process did you use if someone was going to sell something that kind of wasn't on the truck? What was the approval process you had, and how did you ensure that that was the direction you wanted to go in? Yeah, so it's so typically we'd say there is a process we had for making contractual commits. Now, that's a you know, that one is a tricky one because the more uh, onerous that that process is, the less the incentive for the salesperson to follow it. And because, uh, so it has to be, uh, so we, we've tried different things, um, but the more controls you try to put on it, then the more leakage there would be. And the worst thing that can happen is, um, you know, it becomes something like a wink, wink, nod, nod, and there's no trace of that stuff. Um, my uh, guidance would be to watch out for any functionality questions that come up during the pre-sales or the sales cycle. Um, and each one of those things that have come up, which we don't ha- say I don't have today, those are potential escalations after they have bought the product. Because somewhere along the line, somebody over there thought this was important, but somehow it didn't make it into a contractual process on our side to track it. And that's definitely what I'm not saying everything is going to be there, but they're all potential. It was part of the process to try and see if they really needed it. Because to me, the real tragedy is when we commit to do something, do it, and they don't use it. And yeah. Uh, we, we try to, uh, because that requires some engagement during the pre-sales process to find it out. Because that's the pro- time to find it out. But the prob- problem is that there's so much 
so many different players involved in a sales cycle uh, on the bus on the buying cycle the the buyer the user the implementer they are all different personas so you know somebody is working off some checklist over here and somebody is working off another checklist over there i don't think it's really possible to uh to do that stuff now my better way to would be is that's why i said it's potential escalation and not all things that somebody asked about will become an escalation and so uh after you know typically these products require some level of implementation and that's the process where we can really weed out by saying yeah you saw something there you asked a question there but you really need it and and that's why that's why you know even committing is okay because you can still negotiate out of it later on and that's where the account execs help is necessary because they do have some longer relationships with the uh with the uh, customer but it's it's a really tough one to 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 balance because especially in the larger enterprise often the your deal is part of a bigger is part of a bigger puzzle so right. when you're in a small company you know your your yes. deal is the most important deal but if you're in an enterprise vendor and you're one product in a portfolio then um you know your deal may be a lever for some other deal that's even bigger and so so you really do have to sometimes step back and understand the 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 um the the politics of the of the deal uh to know um uh you know which ones are the most important ones to to um uh to commit to um and yeah, again it goes think- back it goes back also to something Dave was saying the other week about you know who's your ide- ideal customer and um there are customers that you will move heaven and earth for right and you just need to be be sure that those <laughs> you know those are the those are the right ones you know uh, talk yeah, a little but, bit about that morally but they they one things there to add to your uh, to answer your question specifically see you know if you build this i will buy that that kind of an arrangement has a bigger danger of us building something that they don't really need compared to saying that you buy we make a commitment we'll build this for you I think in that model there is a little bit more uh, filtering process to uh, when we actually get down to doing it is like you know we get dig- deeper and deeper into this and you realize that's actually you're articulating a symptom not a problem at all and what you are actually uh, you know this thing that you're asking for will not really solve your problem you can you, that 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 process also which which out quite a bit of this uh, uh, the the kind of thing you're describing the the part where if you say oh come back to us in a year when you built all these things that kind of a deal yeah you're right absolutely right there is a lot of case that um you'll end up building something that nobody wants nobody uses yeah. and i'm not a big fan of that and uh, and if you look today morley um yeah one of the things i like to speak off is a difference between between pm 10 years ago and pm now pm 10 years ago you were kind of often flying blind um uh in terms of you know making commitments in terms of uh of um you know understanding custom uh usage of the system um uh being able to sort of understand um customer satisfaction and so on um whereas today you know things have changed um if you look at like when you started at success factors in pm uh how product management was then to you know now starting at 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 atmost which is a you know which is a, a, a you know is a, a scaling up startup how how different is product management from back then 
to to how product management is today? What what's the tooling and the and the capabilities yeah. that you have today that maybe you didn't have today, didn't have then? And what's what's kind of stayed the same? So I mean, the what stays the same is that the ask is always bigger than your capacity. That part of it, right? That that hasn't changed much. Um, but what has definitely changed from a pro- product manager is that we are a lot more conscious of cost of operating, um, not just a lot more. We are com- we are much more aware of that. We were completely unaware of that. There was this big dimension of the cost of operation of software. Um, I think for me personally, I came from you know implementing software in the on-premise world, and the fact that there was this huge cost that you were going to carry for a long time by doing something that was I didn't complete I was not aware of that at all and it took me many many years to understand the dimension of that I, even today I don't think I've understood all the dimensions very well I just am aware and I ask some questions around you know this versus that uh, and in fact at utmost we just had last week we had a, a lengthy discussion about two ways of doing it and clearly one was a higher cost to develop and the other one was a higher cost to operate and we had that trade-off discussion, for example. That would have never happened. That never did happen 10 years ago. Right. Um, that's that from a, just from a, the mindset of the product manager, what has changed. The second thing is that the amount of data that's available today um, and tools that are available for, for uh, evaluating and also this, um, this notion of using consumer software as a uh, as a model to understand how to build enterprise software. Some of those things are totally different today compared to 10 years ago. Can you give me an example? Yeah, so, uh, you know, um, like usability. Right? Um, usability uh, as a, a, or a number of clicks uh, in my application. I don't think I ever thought about this until until like four or five years into uh, being a product manager, that why would, uh, why, you know, why is usability so important, for example? That part of it, in enterprise software, I'm saying that we do take it a lot more seriously now. We value number of how many clicks do you have to go or how much time something takes to do or, <clears throat> or does it even feel natural to use this software? Right. I think that that's a hugely, uh, I don't think we've reached the spot where we are, you know, we have, because we do have that fundamental dichotomy, right? The difference between the buyer, the, the configurator and the user. That, that gap is still there in, in enterprise, that there are three or four different personas who are touching the software. And depending on who you talk to, you'll get a very, very different uh, input. Um, right. Whereas in consumer, it's, it's much more streamlined. Uh, there's one person. I decide what app, how the app should be used. I decide whether I keep it or not. Right, right. And... Um... I suppose, yeah. I guess that whole thing about the relationship then to the designer becomes uh, uh, more more significant. How how different is that? Say where you are today, and then say maybe where you were four or five years ago. The relationship between between product and uh, and and product product and design. How does that how does that work? You know, how does that work today? That's maybe different from how it was before. Or was it the same? It's. I don't. I don't see much difference um, in that. Uh, you know, it's just as contentious as ever. I suppose um, the the UX person looks at me and thinks, "You think I just make mock-ups?" And I say, "Hey, where's my mock-up?" You know that. Sure, that that part of it, <laughs> that that contention is still there, uh, and there's like, no, we are. You know, we are much more than that. Uh, I think there's there's also uh, the one thing which um, 
uh, UX people are also uh, doing is also starting to think a lot like product managers, which is also helpful. Right. Um, uh, and, and that's, you know, just as a pros- uh, the profession has evolved. Just like product managers, for example, in enterprise, at least are much more sensitive about usability. Um, uh, also, I, I don't have to, for example, this time around, uh, we didn't spend much time discussing the need for configurability and the different options and things like that, which you know, I used to have endless debates about that. I remember those. Yeah. Back in the day, it's like, oh, why, you know, why can't there be one golden configuration? It doesn't, because there is no one golden company. They're all different. Hey, Thomas? Yep. Well, we've got a question here. I just brought up a moment from the audience. Excellent. So just, just uh, this is the SaaS Product Power Breakfast, just to get in the advert. Not that we have any sponsors. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Momin, uh, welcome. Let's, uh, let's have your question. Hey, y'all. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. So, uh, my question is that, you know, over the next, I guess, you know, five or even a couple of years, how do enterprise software companies differentiate their products from competitors? If we're all going to achieve, you know, the same level of, of UI nirvana or or even feature functionality, um, you know, how, how did two ERP vendors or two asset management vendors truly differentiate their, you know, themselves? Is it bringing a, a commercial debate into, uh, you know, to the table or? You know, um, is it is it a price conversation? Um, the, you know, something that I think about a lot is is you know, uh, um, ceteris paribus, right? If it's, it's just the same, you know, how do we truly differentiate ourselves? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think the the pricing one is interesting um, because Thomas and I used to have these discussions as to you know, is there something beyond like, for example, the subscription model that we should look at? You know, something around transactions and things like that. That's certainly one way to differentiate. Uh, the, the, I think the other thing is that uh, in terms of enterprise software, the, oh, the vast union of all the things that you could do, you know, no one vendor is going to be able to meet all those things. Um, even today, after so many years, when you look at mature products and you say, these, things, these people do this well and those people do those things well. And therefore, then one way to differentiate is to figure out if am I going vertical or am I going geographic or I'm go, I'm go, am I going after something that I am known for? What am I doing better? And, and, and if there is, if you, if you do find something, just like, you know, you find a differentiation in pricing, you could also find differentiation in, in that. If you just say, I am equally good about uh, everything that we do, uh, then you're pro- probably you're kind of average and no one person is going to love you. Yeah, it's tough to be an all-rounder in cricket, in other words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's tough to so, be an all-rounder and be, uh, you know, be selected for your batting or your bowling. Indeed. So there will be a, there will be a fair bit of cricket slipping in slipping in here. I'm afraid. So apologies to the to the to the baseball fans, but I think it's. I will translate to baseball if I knew how. Hey, I I had a thought on that question. I'd like to weigh in because I think it's super interesting. Um, look, in my opinion, it's going to be harder, right? That 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 you know, design used to be a differentiator, and now it's table stakes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's generally a trend in enterprise software that things become table stakes over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, it just you prompted a bigger question in my head, which we can revisit another time. But I think to really disrupt an entrenched enterprise software vendor like Oracle and databases, right, or, or SAP and apps, it takes a simultaneous technology and business model disruption. I don't think you could just do it with features. 
mtech mm -hmm. and if you look at SaaS for salesforce if you look at mongodb and nosql they were both business model and technological disruptions so i think it's hard i mean i think enterprise software tends to oligopolies and if which is, by the way, why these companies are worth so much. <laughs> um, and and once, once they're there, it's kind of hard to get them out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the stickiness factor is there. It's, it's fascinating, though, at the same time that you have the, these big vendors, uh, you know, you kind of see them as being impregnable. But then they're always you know, huge amounts of niche innovation, you know, uh, new companies addressing, you know, expanding the scope of what is enterprise tech or, or doing one piece of the puzzle so significantly better than, than other, than perhaps the, the, the larger vendors, you know, the larger vendors do, you know, I see this, you know, I see this all the time in, in, in HR tech and the, you know, the spend in, in niche vendors is, is, is growing faster than the spend in, 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 the, in the core vendors. So there's, there's so much uh, uh, activity around the, the edges. Case, isn't it? That's always been the case, at least for 25 years. I, I feel like it's, it's the, 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 the edge innovation is, um, you know, is, is higher than it's probably, than it's probably, uh, than it's probably ever been. Because the yeah, SaaS, the SaaS model, the SaaS model uh, enables that. Um, so whereas before, if you wanted to build something, you actually had to, you know, you had to do quite a lot of work. Uh, you know, when SuccessFactor started, for instance, you know, they, they had to buy servers and 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 mm. and, and build a, you know, and build an infrastructure. Uh, you know, before they could really get customers. And and today, I think you can, you know, a, a vendor can 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 get a, uh, a minimal viable product, you know, to market very, very quickly that's, uh, and, and experiment and see whether it solves a particular, you know, a particular niche problem. Yeah, you, um, don't, you don't even need a garage anymore, right? No. Yeah, and you can sell it directly to the business user with a problem. And that's my whole theory of what's right. happened in the last 20 years in SaaS or the last 10 years is just one by one, we're finding business users in pain who were never in enough pain to get, kind of cared about by central IT and they're just buying solutions themselves. Um, and, that's, uh, that's actually a great point. Yeah, that's true. It, so, but if I may say something, you know, isn't that what Mark Benioff did to Siebel back in, you know, 2003 and 2004? I mean, I think, aren't we ready for an even greater shift in thinking? Um, you know, David, I, I think you, you have a good point. I think the commercial models are hitting on, you know, just a, a truly disruptive way of being able to pay for enterprise software and how the business sees value in it, whether it's day one or day 100, I think that's going to move the needle. I think also what's interesting is that at the moment we have what in academic speak, what is called a dominant design, right? And that is SaaS, right? Today in enterprise software, we have a dominant design, which is you build something, it sits on, it sits on AWS or it sits on Azure or it sits on uh, GCP and uh, does a whole lot of, does a whole lot of things for you and you charge a subscription for it right that's the dominant model you know 15 years ago we didn't have a dominant model we had we had that model emerging uh, we had a previous generation of model uh, in on premise software and and we've seen that shift so things are things are at least architecturally relatively settled at the moment at a, at a, at a high level i suspect you know just as we get comfortable with with sas um, uh, something else will come along. I, I don't know what that, that thing is that will come along and that will, that will disrupt this. Then Dave and I would have to rename the breakfast. Um, uh, <laughs> but at some point, there will be something that, that, that disrupts this rather cozy um, 
uh, assumption that we have today of of you know of uh, 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 public cloud and uh, and subscription and subscription license. What do you no, think, Marley? I mean, tra- transaction based uh, value. You know, that's that's more based on value. That that's been that works in certain areas. It you know, we I guess some of us haven't yet figured out how to do that uh, for all the stuff that we do. Um, I guess the question there, Murli, is is that as disruptive as SaaS was to on-prem or is that simply a refinement of the SaaS model? I'm a little bit in the latter camp. I think it's a good idea. I don't think yeah. it works in all cases, but it does is not. it really disruptive? Yeah, it's right. not. It's definitely not as, nothing is close to uh, right. uh, the SaaS versus on-premise disruption, which yeah. was totally... Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. uh, I, I, see a, I see perhaps in... in, in uh, yeah, sorry to keep going on about HR tech, but it's kind of the only thing that I know. Um, there is a there is a potential disruption in, in in HR tech, which I think is quite significant. Is that for the last twenty years we've been centralizing um, data. You know, we've been moving mm-hmm. stuff from local systems to global systems. So we've been saying, you know, the nirvana is you have this one single system that that functions globally that brings everything together and and then you can run everything you know you can run all your processes globally and you know i suspect we'll we'll, we'll start to see a, a fragmenting of that and we'll start to see uh, edge computing is the wrong term but we'll start to see see more local uh, more yeah, processes moving back to 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 local uh, uh, to 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 local uh, levels and then they'll be loosely coupled then an emerging um, uh, you know, sharding or, or coupling of these of these uh, of these systems. I think we'll start to see we'll start to see that happening at least in at least in HR That's tech. driven by regulation, also, right? There's also increased data residency regulation that's going on, which correct could, uh, yeah. make that possible. And geo and geopolitical. The, I think it's yeah. a combination of, of of geopolitical and legal factors, and then uh, companies will operating will 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 want to operate more independently and also i think we're at a point where where it's architecturally feasible um you know i think um 10 years ago and it wasn't architecturally feasible to to design a a, a distributed system that worked very well you know work, work very well globally but i think uh, in terms of database technology things have changed and i think in how how you uh, think about uh, uh applications has changed i think morally the example that you know you and i know was the was the uh, architecting to cope with the Russian requirements right, for, right. for, you know, and and perhaps things like that will become more will be more will become more um, will become more commonplace. But I wanted to turn that question back to Momin. Momin, what were where what was your what is the hypothesis that you've reached in your thinking on this topic? You know, I look at the software enterprise software world and you know between the the big enterprise software companies i personally don't see differentiation in, in the products and i believe you know there needs to be something else that has to come to light um because so many of those niche vendors are being able to, to sell into the business being able to sell their their SaaS solutions right into the business mm-hmm. um that you know maybe there's a world where enterprise software you know doesn't even exist as it is today, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I actually probably really do believe that. There was a couple episodes ago where I talked about, you know, even the role of system integrators, um, how, you know, Accenture and Deloitte, you know, often dominate this space and they have billion-dollar practices. Um, is that even a future uh, for them? And, and, you know, 
again i, I don't so see it yeah i i can tell you about one thing i this is uh, when commercial off the shelf software came that was in the 80s or so 80s 90s at that time these system integrators who are a uh, big time um, they were application development they had big application development teams uh, an end of the world was forecasted for them at that time um, in fact erp was the biggest thing that happened to them and then when it went to saas the same thing was said oh you don't need all these system integrators anymore but saas has been another great boon for them so i think the i'm less uh, uh, on board for that particular thing that these organizations are fairly flexible and they will they will bring about the change and they will ride that change wagon anyway so i think i agree that it may not be the same model but i i think their they might uh forecasting of their demise is uh, greatly exaggerated but but you raise a great point i actually had this discussion with a customer one saying that this was when we were coming out with a new ui and we were discussing who when this they should adopt it and things like that and the centralization versus decentralization argument and i said what if we allow each user to decide if they want a particular this new ui or not and and i got a lot of pushback from that customer saying that how oh, you cannot just do that um and it was an interesting not that we were trying to i would ever we were not ready to do that anyway but um but i was just thought process you know to to expand on moments point that you know this enterprise software even exist in the way uh that it is today and and this is one way is that do you allow customers individual users to pick what tools they want and make it all work together. Hey, uh, moment. I, I, two, two thoughts on what you said. Um, one, I mean, by the way, all the way back to I think Merle's point, when system integrators kind of originally were born, they weren't even called system integrators because they weren't integrating systems. They were building systems. Yes. Uh, and I remember the first time I heard the term system integrator, I'm like, what's that? <laughs> uh, and I would argue that Palantir is truly a next-generation system. Like him or hate him, they're truly a next gen system integrator they they hire super quality talent they bring huge amounts of prepackaged tech to the party and and solve really hard problems so I, i think that's an example of somebody who's different and then when it comes to enterprise software look at the intermarketer me marketing guy and me just has to say if we can differentiate rice and beer we can differentiate software there will be a way <laughs> and and i think mega <laughs> vendors primarily do it on breath startups primarily do it on dev thanks Cool. And and these niche vendors effectively all want to become the platform player, right? Yeah. In an enterprise. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's very hard, right? I mean, you've done it, but but lots of people don't they just end up in their niche, right? And sometimes they get acquired. They get acquired. Yeah. Gets eaten. Um but yeah, it's hard to become a platform, let's say that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah, it is tough. Yeah, so so actually that's you know, there's a question I've asked a couple of people, but this um Yeah, what is in your mind Morley, what is a platform and what is an app? Oh, boy. <laughs> This is a such a philosophical question. Um so an um a platform uh is something um that is inherently the value comes because something else it drives something which actually gives um value. So if I'm an uh i'm an app i'm used by an end user if i'm a platform the the app uses the platform um so that's how you uh, i could differentiate uh the two things and 
uh, it's also possible to um, quantify what the app does a lot better than what a platform does. If you're not, you know, if you're not able to uh, quantify that, chances are then then it's becoming platform. Right. Um, but so, but it's it's a it's a what do you call order of uh, how how many degrees you are from the user is probably how you can differentiate the platform versus the app. Right. Right. I think, from an enterprise perspective, yeah. Yeah. One of the I remember when I first started working with you, you had a very good you had a, a definition for me of what what the goal of a product manager was, and it's still stuck with me. I hope I haven't I hope I don't massacre your your uh, your uh, description, but your your definition of a of a product manager's role was to to make sure that uh, uh, engineering is working on the right thing at the right time, and uh, you said everything else is a bonus that you do as a as a as a as a product manager. And uh, so that's on the on the production side. So if you think about a product manager, right, there's three things we do. One is ideation, one is production, and one is dissemination. Once the product, you know, all the go to market activities and all the other stuff like that. So in the production thing and and if you think about it 60% or so of the product manager's time is spent in that middle phase uh, which is where the the product is built there it's absolutely uh, it, it is about uh, because inherently it is it is there is going to be there are more asks than um, there are more asks than you have capacity for then what do you do you use your ideation to say what should i work on and then Everything is focused on that, right? Right, and so so explore a little bit, you know, how you how you think then about about issues of you know of technical debt and and how you and how product manager uh, works with with an architect. You know, I'm thinking especially in the you know there's uh, I'm thinking for advice here in particular for for some of the earlier stage uh, vendors who. You know, I have to start thinking not just about functions and features, but about making data model decisions and so on. You know, early on in the product lifecycle, that 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 will set it up for the you know for the future. Um, I think you're in an interesting situation in that you're you're at a startup today that that is a startup of grown-ups. You know, yes. um, in a sense that the the, the startup yes. you're in is 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 made up of people who have had. Two or three successful exits in enterprise software. Um, uh, so, so what have yeah. you been doing in that context in terms of thinking about about the engine as a product manager? You know, when you think about architecture, maybe less about engineering yeah. and more about architecture. I, I think, you know, function, I what where, I call functional where, architecture. Yeah. yeah, where I think uh, now this is I'm very comfortable with where uh, my thinking is on this topic, which is that uh, the product manager has to uh, drop the end state. Um, that they'd like to be in uh, first. Uh, I think that that point of view has to be very clear. And then uh, from an architect's perspective, uh, that's where a good architect is hugely useful is because the architect has to be able to say, okay, this is where we are. We will end up going eventually and be able to uh, design um, with some level of elasticity built into that design. Um, because I don't think, you know, that's one of the things where, for example, you know, take uh, HCM uh, use cases like, you know, things like effective dating, audit, or, uh, you know, these kind of big or separation between, you know, users and workers and all these kind of conceptual things. You may not be able to solve all of them today, but you know that uh, you will have to solve them if you're successful. And that means that at that stage uh, to retrofit your design is takes forever. 
So either you design for it right now, whether or not you build it is different, but you have to design for it. So I think I think it starts with the product manager. Uh, that's one of the things that I done um, um, uh, I've done uh, for the last few years is that when we're doing something is like okay, what will the end state be and and start with the design from there uh, with the architect from there. And then when we get to the engineering, yeah, you know, that's a lot of, there's no way an engineer can cope with all that, that level of complexity when you, you know, you have a, a week or two weeks or whatever to build whatever you want, whatever you need. And, and so uh, for sure, uh, we, we've got to start from that perspective. And I think any product manager, that's that ideation phase where you sit there and think about, okay, what will that end state be? What will be my vision like? What are the uh, pitfalls? And, and as far as that is concerned, I mean, there's going to be that. I don't see any way around it. Um, and I'm actually 50-50 on whether, oh, is that, uh, how much debt is bad and how much debt is good. Um, I haven't yet found a golden rule yet. Um, everybody wrings their hand and makes a big noise about it, but I don't think we know how to manage that quite well yet because yeah. initially you are going to load up the debt. Yeah, I, I, I think between... I've been thinking a little bit about this, and I think in terms of sort of conscious debt and unconscious debt, right? There's debt that you're taking on that you know about, right? And you've thought it through and you've, you've weighed up, you know, are you prepared to take this on? And then there's other debt that hits you that you weren't expecting that hits you from the side, you know? So I think about, you know, I've looked at some HR tech vendors and they've thought very carefully about that separation between employee user, employee and user, Right. And maybe they don't, don't do it in the first release, but they have a plan and a strategy of how they're going to do it in release four, release five, or year two, year three, or whatever. And then you get another vendor where you meet them, they've been going for two or three years, and you ask them, hey, have you separated the, the user and the employee object? And they say, why do you want to do that? Um, those are two very different technical debt scenarios. But that's a, in that model, Thomas, I'd say that it's a matter of... Uh the functional competence of the product manager. Right. So, uh, because this is something, uh, but, but something like, for example, the debt that, uh, like take, take success factors, for example, uh, when success factors started out, there were no such thing as uh, AWS or uh, Azure or things like that, right? There's no public cloud concept 20, 20 years ago. Um, and so then, then the fact that now success factors has their own data centers uh, is that that? Is, could they have perceived it? Probably not. So uh, that that's a totally different kind of debt that, yeah, they couldn't have foreseen it at all, right. that the whole world is going to change. And those are kind of like transformations that they was talking about, which is like, look, that's going to happen. And then what are you going to do about it? You have to react to that. Right. But, but the point you're making is like, look, as a product manager, you know, if I'm building an HCM product and if I, if I don't know the difference between a user and an employee, then I'm not the right product manager. Well, that, that, that's an interesting point because there's a, there's, a debate, there's a debate going on at the moment about, about product management education. And in a couple of future shows, we're going to get some folks on who are actually in product management education. And, you know, it's this debate between, you know, can you take somebody who has a product management discipline and you know put them into put them into managing a product, or do you take somebody that has has um, yeah, has subject matter knowledge and and develop and develop their product management skills? And uh, uh, it's quite an interesting thing. Both both you and I come from the from the latter. Both of us came from mm-hmm. from 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 deep 
functional expertise and then kind of learnt, uh, learnt product management uh, along the way. Um, it was really the only option back then, but today you can go to university and you can do a course on product management, right? Um, yeah. Uh, what, what would you say to you know, somebody that had done a course in product management and was now uh, uh, you know, moving, into, you know, moving into an enterprise, uh, enterprise product management role? What would your advice to them be? No, I think if the, in that model, I think it's important to to gain uh, depth in some functional product area. If, let's say enterprise product management, some functional depth area, whether it's sales, uh, CRM, or it's AM, financials, whatever be it. Get the depth there because ultimately you're you're dealing with business users, so uh, you have to understand that part of it. Now, obviously, you know having a mix of both. Uh, skill sets may actually be good, um, as in people who have uh, uh, a strong grounding in product management training and they've learned the mechanics quite well. And then the other, uh, in a, if you have a team, you know, having a mix of both may be, may be a good way out. Um, but I'd say that in, that in the model that you're describing where somebody comes in, um, yeah, I think then, then you have to spend a certain amount of time in one product, the first one. After that, I think you can rotate quite a bit. Um, right. because, because you have a, a certain uh, North Star or whatever to, to relate how I should ask the questions to. Right. Um, otherwise, half the time you don't know what questions to ask, isn't it? When you yeah. have a, when you have a like if you're, if for example, take your example, the one that you described, which is the user versus employee thing. If you don't know the fact that... Uh, uh, oh, the user and the employee is not the same thing. Uh, you wouldn't know unless you have some understanding of the domain. And, and that domain expertise gives you a certain grounding uh, to then treat other... When you get to a next domain, you will be much better positioned to understand what you don't know. Right, right, right. Do we have Wait, any... Sorry. Dave, a question from... Was, did I hear a question from somebody? Or was I imagining oh. that... Just one question, and sorry, just last thing, and I'll and I'll jump. But have uh, have we identified what debts make sense for an app versus a platform? And maybe I'll lead the witness a little bit in saying that you know, in if you spend more on marketing, you know, on an app, right, you will get the the leads or whatever, and mm-hmm. the opportunities will, will come in, but for a platform there's an argument to be made and and people far smarter than i make this argument about how um just sheer um investments in marketing such as like customer acquisition or sales discounts create far less value uh for the platform um than things like investments in in network effects or architecture or whatever um but so have product managers actually truly figured that portion out about no, or, or even even um, sales leaders about taking on debt for an app versus a platform. Thanks. So I'll have a go at that first, Murali, and then then you yeah. jump in. One of the, one of the this is one of the hardest things as you you know as you come as you get bigger, you essentially as a product manager, if you're leading a team, you're managing a portfolio, right? And um, so you may have you know you may have. Uh, uh, this platform that you're trying to encourage all the app engineers uh, to develop on, at the same time you've got the demand for more and more functionality demands coming from the coming from sales and for the market. You never have a sales 
person saying, hey, you need to improve your platform. You always have a salesperson saying, hey, we need, we, we need, we need more application functionality or we need a better UI or we need uh, uh, more consistency. And uh, customers will normally ask you uh, for, for um, uh, uh, features rather than for, for uh, platform capabilities. And so, so you, as, a, as a product leader, you, you, you have to think about a platform quite objectively. And this goes back to the point I made about developer efficiency the goal of a platform should to be to make your application engineers uh, more efficient, right? And and that's really where you've got to push the platform. You've got to really push the platform to do so. This so a platform, the sole measure of a platform success is is its adoption, right? Um, Morley, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, you, you, you I, and I, I have think, lived through this. Yeah, I don't think we have. Uh Actually, we've, we've come to the uh, good model to even evaluate uh, in the context of like an enterprise thing, uh, how, how do you evaluate if a platform is effective or not? Um, and, and, you know, the platform, you know, the one thing we know is that platform needs to think much longer term from, from, from their roadmap or from the, um, from the use cases that they need to support compared to like an app app can switch app can make turns faster but but platform cannot change that quickly um, but but in general uh, and platform is viewed as a cost rather than as an investment by some people um, sometimes including me uh, when I was not responsible for platforms <laughs> um, but but yeah I don't think we have reached uh, it's still uh, it's still an open question, and we kind of bumble through it, and 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 I haven't seen a good model yet uh, for for that. Right, right. Dave, what about you? Dave, have you uh, spent time thinking about this problem? Yeah, I have. Uh, I mean, I think there's two parts to it. There, there's the the platform, the, the internal kind of primarily internal platform. And the mm-hmm. platform that wants to be both internal and external, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where customers are running the platform as well as your own developers. Um, and I think it's hard to measure the success of the platform. I'm not a huge fan of measuring the platform success by its direct revenue because mm-hmm. then they're going to underserve the internal people. And in my opinion, the, the look, the most common form of technical debt, other than just picking the wrong platform yourself to write on, right, is uh, <laughs> or maybe it was right at the time, but it becomes antiquated. But the most common one, in my mind, in bigger companies is when you – know, I'll just give you a concrete example. When I need a rules uh, – I need a routing engine for routing cases because I'm running customer service. Sales need a routing engine for routing leads, um, and the platform team says no, so we each build our own. And now we've got tech debt because we have two mm-hmm. different routing engines. They're, they're not compatible. They work yeah. differently. And, and, and in my opinion, somebody, i.e. an architect, should have stopped that. But but yeah. and this is why I'm a huge believer in strong architects. But but I think and, and what's worse in that situation yeah. is you're going to end up with three platforms. You're going to end up with three rules engines because platform will eventually get around to building one. Oh yeah, that's and right. then and then and then basically you'll you'll have three engines that don't work very well. <laughs> yeah yeah. So that that to me is a is a I don't know archetypal problem. And the answer is, in my mind, you need to invest in your platform and hold people accountable for delivery because the apps guys, and I was one of the apps guys, are going to say they can't get it fast enough. It's not yeah. going to meet our requirements. Just let us do it ourselves, right? And then and, you have uh, a mini platform team within the apps uh, to 
to do some, you know, you'll end up with seven notification engines and things like that because I want a very boutique kind of notification that my platform doesn't support yet. When I started at Host Analytics, we had like literally six export to Excel utilities. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but see, I think the the point you were starting about the the internal and external platforms, I think I'm actually not convinced that a particular platform can be a uh, it may end, it may eventually end up being a very good external and internal platform, but as the product is growing, I think you can't do both. Uh, you will have to decide: Do you want to do because the use cases needed uh, by the end customer are much more simplistic compared to the use cases needed by the internal customer? And so I, I am not convinced that in the growing part of it now over a period of time. You have, you know, these big software vendors having phenomenal platforms, but I don't know if that's a good strategy to try and because I've tried that and not very successfully to to use uh, a platform that was trying to do both. Agree. Yeah, the, the, you, you've got to. Uh, my my advice to customers uh, when a vendor uh, uh, positions a platform at you um, is to say, where is it used internally? Um, that would be my first question. Because if it's an if it's an app centric uh, vendor who is positioning a platform, and that platform technology hasn't been deployed in anger for an internal product, uh, it probably will never be. It'll probably neg- never take off, you know. And uh, uh, because it doesn't fit the culture of the of the of the application of an application vendor playing a platform, and you find with these bigger vendors, you know, like your SAPs and like your Oracles, is it's not that they don't have a platform. It's that they have platforms. And there are many mm. bits of, of sort of cul-de-sacs and, and architectural dead ends that uh, you can go down as a customer if you jump on to the next latest uh, 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 technology positioning from those application, you know, from those application vendors. You know, if there's any SAP folks on the line, they'll, they'll you know, go back in the history of, you know, Java <laughs> DIMPRO, Java DIMPRO versus ABAP DIMPRO, you know, and uh, you've got to be really careful as a customer uh, when, you, uh, when you commit to a, to a, 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 vendor's, uh, a vendor's platform. We're at about the top of the hour. Goodness me, time has flown. Dave, I'm going to give you the honor of the last question for Morley. If you've got a last oh, question. Uh, I mean, Mike, I guess the question, this is, it's all right to where we started, which is as you went from 15 developers to 100 developers, do you feel like you got the capacity, the 6x increase in capacity? That's my biggest frustration. And I'm just no. curious if you did get it and do you have thoughts no. on how to get it? Because I just feel like there's, um, maybe I'm nostalgic, but there's massive diminishing returns on growing the dev team. That is, <laughs> I am, I, I, I am still not convinced that. Uh, in fact, some some days I do remember thinking about it. Saying, I'm getting even less than I got with 15. Forget about scaling it to eight <laughs> x. <laughs> Absolutely, you're not alone. But 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 I, I think that's where. Uh, yeah, I think this this thing, right? How do you run uh, same speed but at a a scale. I, I still uh, you spend a lot of time. Uh, I think one way to measure this is uh, now I'm starting to think about uh, later on. I started to think about this: how many um, people do you have with fingers on keyboards versus not? So you know, like operating operative product managers, developers, um, QA people who are actually testing, whatever be it, right? Those kind of resources versus not. Uh, 
and that will start to give you an idea of of how much you are getting because the more and more you start to add the non coding or known such layers that tells you that okay you are not getting more efficiency so, so to some extent yes you will need some layers to smoothen out and make the scale work but uh, unsurprisingly but, i have a metric for that which i call developer density yeah. or salesperson density and it's yeah. quota carrying sales people divided that's by right. the sales org or developers divided by the engineering org it's the same right. exact problem same problem. exact problem and then yep. me- measuring that metric will tell you whether you're adding fat or whether you're adding meat so dave what's a maybe a last question there dave what's a good number I think it's forty percent, but but that's that's. <laughs> no, I mean in terms of the the if you if you know a reasonably successful SaaS company uh, has got a got a you know product out the door, say you know ten million AR, the ratio of 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 bag carrier to code commit. I, I think it's forty percent in both cases, to be honest. I mean, plus plus or minus. Right. It, it's lower than you think. Right, yeah. but but a lot of people get outraged, and they're like, you know, we have less than half our people writing code, or less than half our people selling. But if you go through the management layers and the sales ops and all that stuff, that and you hold them accountable for actually helping, the the right answer, in my opinion, is somewhere around forty percent. Right, right, cool. Wow. We will uh, we will go back and dig into that on a, another day. I'm also particularly interested in the ratio between how many how many salespeople, commission carriers, compared to number of engineers. Yeah. And when yeah, I when I meet German when I meet when I meet European software companies on a whole, I feel that they have the ratio the wrong way around. They always they always seem to have more engineers than salespeople. And I've always been in the belief that once you've got some sort of market fit, you need to have you need to have many more salespeople than you have uh, than you have right, engineers. Right. But uh, we will come back to that another day. Morley, I want to thank you very very much for the for the uh, uh, for the, for coming on the call today, and I hope to see you. One of these days in a Chennai Super King shirt. At, uh, <laughs> at, at, I'm, I'm thinking it's got to be Lords this time. It's got to be Lords. Yeah, so Lords or Newlands. <laughs> Lords or Lords or Newlands. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right. All right. All right, All right everybody. Thanks very Thank much. Bye bye.